in her 2007 memoir, India Remembered, a personal account of the Mountbatten's during the transfer of power, Lady Pamela Hicks recalls her life as the daughter of the last Viceroy of India during the years before the Indians gained their independence from Britain in 1947. As the daughter of the Viceroy, Lady Pamela lived in the appropriately named Viceroy's house as a girl. Here's how she describes living in Viceroy's house. I described Viceroy's house in those first diary entries in India as, quote, absolutely immense, presumably quite impressive just to come and see and go away again, but a complete headache to live in, and it seems to have been built for the express purpose of losing people in it. Then Lady Pamela, as a grown woman, remembers how long it took her to get from her bedroom to the dining room. How long does it take you to get from your bedroom to your dining room? I have to walk through this little nook, kind of cut the corner of a kitchen in the corner of the living room. I think I can clear the distance in a, in a manner of seconds, especially if a child is crying or there's sounds of fighting in the distance, right? Here's Lady Pamela. It was enormous with high ceilings. It took 10 minutes to walk from your bedroom to the dining room. By bicycle was often quicker. The British had been convinced that India should not be ruled from a hut, but from a palace. So they built the appropriately named Viceroy's house using 3 million cubic feet of stone and 1 billion bricks, the resulting 200,000 200, square foot home had 340 rooms on four floors. Empires ooze magnificence, and the British Empire was an empire unlike any other. By the first quarter of the 20th century, almost one in four people lived under the flag of the United Kingdom, and almost 14 million square miles, 24% of the land of the earth, belonged to Britain. But the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Britain's overseas territories today consist of a tiny handful of islands and claims to land in Antarctica. And the downfall was quick, too. After a rise over the centuries, the British Empire fell in decades. After World War I in the early 1920s, Britain was the global power. By 1956, the Suez Crisis demonstrated decisively that the British Empire was over. Now, if you're uh, visiting this morning from England, Scotland, Wales, or one of Her Majesty's overseas territories, including the British Antarctic Territory, then a warm and hearty welcome to you. 
The point is not to pick on Britain this morning, whom we tied in the World Cup 0-0, but to illustrate the point of Ezekiel chapter 31. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Majestic empires seemingly stretching to the heavens forever can collapse in a moment. And in the passage before us, Ezekiel offers a unique comparison to Egypt. You see it in verse 2. Who are you like in your greatness, O Egypt, having offered a crocodile and a staff of reed as illustrations for Egypt in Ezekiel chapter 29? The Lord turns to an entire nation, Assyria, and paints a picture of it as a great cedar of Lebanon. Now, the time for the illustration, this is how we understand verse 1, is two months after Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 20. So we're in June 587 BC. And Ezekiel's message to Egypt using Assyria as a model is that extravagant beauty without the Lord must lead to extreme despair. Extravagant beauty without the Lord will inevitably lead to extreme despair. And that this message is true for everyone, everywhere, including Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So those are three headings, extravagant beauty, (coughs) excuse me, extravagant beauty, verses three to nine, extreme despair, verses 10 to 17. And finally, at the last, in verse 18, everyone, everywhere. Now, first, extravagant beauty. The Lord paints a picture for Pharaoh. Imagine that the Assyrian Empire is a great, magnificent tree. Now, it's no surprise that the Lord chooses a tree as a symbol of extravagant beauty. Though humans can make magnificent palaces, we cannot manufacture anything as beautiful as the Lord has given us in his creation. So verse 3, consider the beauty of this cedar of Lebanon. The cedar has big, beautiful branches. It offers a pleasant shade. The cedar of, of Lebanon, cedars of Lebanon, in fact, can have branches that span 80 feet. So it creates quite a canopy, a respite from a hot sun. They also grow tall. Verse 3 recognizes this. Its top is among the clouds because it's of towering height. Cedars of Lebanon can grow 130 feet tall, and they can have trunks up to 8 feet in diameter. And the picture that we have in Ezekiel 31 is that all creation conspires together to make this tree great. Verse 4, the waters nourished it. The deep made it grow tall. And grow tall it does. Verse 5, it towered high above all the trees of the field. Its boughs grew large and its branches long. And creation, having conspired to bless and grow this tree, then receives benefits from it. Verse 6, all the birds of the heaven made their nests in its boughs. And under its branches, all the beasts of the field gave birth to the young. So this magnificent cedar of Lebanon is a hotel for the birds of the air and a maternity ward for the beasts below. This tree 
so very alive in itself, is also teeming with life. It, verse 7, was beautiful in its greatness. Indeed, so very beautiful, verse 8, that the cedars in the garden of God could not rival it. No tree could rival this tree. Not the fir tree, not the plane tree. No tree in the garden of God, verse 8, was its equal in beauty. Well, how can such extravagant beauty ever appear on the earth? There's only one answer, the Lord himself. Verse 9, I made it beautiful in the mass of its branches. And then the the Lord imagines that the tree is so beautiful that the other trees have rationality and can reflect on the beauty of this tree. And they yearn, they yearn to be like it. And Assyria was this tree. Tiglath-Pileser, the Assyrian king who died in 727 BC, arguably made Assyria the first empire of the world, as we use the word empire today. Assyria conquered most of the, the world that was known to it. It faced no legitimate rival for power. It established a sophisticated apparatus of assimilating other people under its umbrella and exercising political control over many people with different languages and different ethnicities. It was a global empire. Nations continue to capture the imagination of others by displaying their wealth in prodigious ways. How much did Qatar, I don't care what people say, that's how we say it. I'm just, you know, I'm just like, so how much did Qatar spend for the World Cup? Do you know how much Qatar spent for the World Cup? Over a 10 year period, Qatar, this little nation, spent $220 billion. billion. That figure is more than twice what was spent for the last eight World Cups combined. $220 billion. Nations spend a lot of their wealth in order to attract the admiration of others. And it's not just nations. It's people too. People display their wealth, and capture the imagination of others through what we could call their own private building programs. Total spending, Qatar spent $220 billion over a 10-year period for the World Cup, but total spending for the global beauty industry in just one year, 2020, $483 billion. That's a lot of hair care, skin care, cosmetics, perfumes, and deodorants. To put things in perspective, in 2020 dollars, the United States, the entirety of the United States interstate highway system cost $535 billion in 2020 dollars over a 35 year period. So we care very much about our appearances. 
We want very much to look beautiful. And though it's so often overdone in our culture, I, I, it's not a bad thing. I mean, being horribly unkempt is not a sign of godliness, no more than being put all together is a sign of God, godliness. But if you have any beauty in you, and you do, because you're made in the image and likeness of God himself, if you have any beauty in you, then know that God looks at you and says, I made it. God made you. You did not beautify yourself, even if you are spending hundreds or thousands of dollars contributing to the multi-billion dollar industry that is the, the, the global beauty industry. God gave you your good looks. So be thankful to him. Extravagant beauty. Now, in verses 10 to 17, we, we turn away from extravagant beauty to extreme despair. Extreme despair. And that's because Assyria did not honor the Lord for her extravagant beauty. Verse 10. Verse 10. Its heart was proud because of its height. And what's the result? Verse 11, I will surely give it in the hand of a mighty one of the nations. That's in fact what the Lord did. And who is the mighty one? Verse 12, it's foreigners, the most ruthless of nations. That slogan, the most ruthless of nations, is used consistently to refer to the Babylonians. The Babylonians are the ones, verse 11, who will surely deal with it as its wickedness deserves. What will they do or what did they do? They cut it down, verse 12, and they left it. The Lord made it beautiful, but then look, verse 11, what does the Lord say? I have cast it out. I made it beautiful, and now I've cast it out. The majestic tree, this majestic tree has been cut down. And notice that it's not been cut down to serve a holy purpose, like contributing to the building of Solomon's temple, or even humble use, like being put to the flames to warm people on a cold winter's day. No, this magnificent tree has given its branches to the mountains and valleys, verse 12, and its broken boughs to the, re- the ravines. Whereas before, the tree was the picture of life, itself alive and also teeming with life. Now the tree is the picture of death and decay. Verse 12, all the peoples of the earth have gone away from its shadow and left it. So the tree has fallen and the tree is alone. Well, not quite. It's fallen trunk, verse 13, has become a kind of latrine for birds and beasts crawling all over it. And, and instead of being a place, a maternity ward for beasts and a hotel for the, the birds of the air, it, it is actually an obstacle to the flourishing of others. That's what we see in verse 14. The Lord clothed Lebanon in gloom for it, verse 15. And all the trees of the field fainted because of it. So the tree 
is cut down. It falls to the earth. But the despair gets even more extreme. What was cast out will now be cast down. Verse 16, I cast it down to Sheol, the Lord says, with those who go down to the pit. And the world below is strangely comforted to receive it and the tree's people. That's what we see in verse 17. Misery loves company. And so the gates of hell open wide and receive this tree. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Assyria indeed fell so quickly that the reason for its decline is still debated today. The empire lasted hundreds and hundreds of years, but then in a span of about 20 years, a quick span, about 20 years before Ezekiel's time, the empire was over. So it served, in the words of one commentator, as a perfect image of a long-standing superpower that had crumbled to nothing, that had crumbled to nothing. Things last seemingly forever, and then, in a moment, they're gone. Consider the fall of the tree named Prometheus. In 1963, a graduate student at the University of North Carolina, Donald Rusk Curry, was using a tree corer in order to estimate the ages of bristlecone pines. Stories conflict, but basically in order to estimate the age of this one particular tree, it was cut down. By counting the rings, the age of the felled tree could be estimated. This tree was an old tree. It was a very old tree. I mean, an extremely old tree. In fact, it was thousands of years old. In fact, it turned out to be the oldest non-clonal organism. And now it was dead. They killed it. Someone cut it down. Did Curry request, or did someone from the Park Forest Service suggest that Prometheus be cut down? Now, we have conflicting accounts, perhaps understandably. Who would want to say it was my bright idea to kill this old tree? Now, and was it selected because people thought it was old or because people didn't know that it was so old? We don't know. But we do know that Prometheus was alive and now is dead. The Assyrian Empire was great and magnificent and is now no more. Prometheus and the Assyrian Empire have little bits and pieces that survive in museums, not in the wild. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Now, the application of this section of verses is actually our third point. So we'll turn to it now. In verse 18, everyone everywhere. We go from extravagant beauty to extreme despair. The message is for Pharaoh, but the message is also for us. 
The last sentence of Ezekiel chapter 31 is the big reveal. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude, declares the Lord God. The tree with extravagant beauty that fell into the extreme despair, that was Assyria. But that's you, Egypt. That's you, Pharaoh. If Assyria couldn't get away with it, then neither can Egypt. If Assyria can take the magnificent beauty that the Lord gives and disregard the giver, but receive the gift. If Assyria was plunged into extreme despair, then Egypt will be plunged into extreme despair too. One commentary offers a a succinct reason why. For the unchangeable God governs the world on the same unchangeable principles. The unchangeable God governs the world on the same unchangeable principles. Egypt, a great civilization in glory and in greatness, nevertheless shall be brought down with the trees of Eden to the world below. Pharaoh, you will be pathetic even in your defeat. There shall be no glory. You shall lie among the uncircumcised. There's no greatness. You shall lie with those who are slain by the sword. Egyptian priests and kings, at their very least, practiced circumcision. So the the idea of being with laying with the uncircumcised was an abomination to Pharaoh. Additionally, as we all well know from what they left behind, the Egyptians took great care in a proper burial ritual. So to be out in the field, dead among the uncircumcised, was horrific, to say the least. On Ezekiel 31, one commentator writes, quote, Great men and great multitudes, with a great figure and great noise they make in the world. When God comes to contend with them, will soon become little, less than nothing, such as Pharaoh and all his multitude. It's true of Pharaoh. It's true for everyone, everywhere. The tree of someone's life may be flourishing, may be growing high and tall and also wide. And God gives a person life and makes people grow. Even those that do not know the Lord is blessing them with life. He gives them life. He gives them joys in this life, delights in this life. He blesses them even when they never recognize him at all. But Ezekiel chapter 31 is a sobering reminder that God will not always be so slow to bring his justice. He is patient now, but he is also just. And the most extravagant beauty divorced from the worship of the Lord must be plunged ultimately one day into extreme despair. Everyone everywhere must face their maker. They must come to grips with the fact that the same 
unchangeable God who rules and judged the Assyrians, judged the Egyptians, will one day come to judge you and me. There is a tree that flourishes, and there's also a tree that is cut down and burned. What does John the Baptist say? Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. But it doesn't have to be that way. Psalm 92 verse 12 specifically evokes a cedar in Lebanon as a picture of someone flourishing under the Lord's care. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. And how does the psalm, the book of Psalms begin? It begins with Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a what? He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. I want you to prosper. I do not want you to burn. Imagine being a tree in a forest with a fire raging all around you. Under extreme conditions, a forest fire can generate temperatures over 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's a temperature equivalent to one-fifth the heat of the surface of the sun. Imagine there you are, surround your little tree, tall and majestic, extravagant in your beauty, and you're surrounded by flames and it starts to rain. But in the distance, not on you. What do you hope will happen? You hope the rain will come your way. You'll yearn for waters to engulf the flames, for storm clouds to put out the fire of the sun? Or do you, if you are not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, then you are simply waiting for the fire to come your way. If you continue to live without reference to God, then however extravagant your beauty is, then one day, I say this not glibly but soberly, then one day you will be cut down and the Lord God Almighty will cast you out and cast you down. Friends, I want you to flourish like a cedar of Lebanon. I want you to grow tall and broad and be extravagant in the beauty that the Lord has given you. I don't want you to be cast down and smothered in gloom. The answer is to cry out to the God of heaven, to call out for his cleansing reign. Listen to the words of Isaiah 45, verse 8. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. The choice is yours. Choose life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray 
that you would draw us all ever closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. If there is anyone here who does not know you, may today be the day of his or her salvation. May that person cry out for rescue and mercy. And would you water us all with your unfailing love. And it's in your strong and powerful name we pray. Amen.